Broken trust can be healed, but it's not just time that's going to heal it. You need clear guidance about what to do and what not to do. I'm Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist, and I've developed a free video course called The First Steps to Rebuilding Trust. This course will show you what's needed to begin healing after betrayal. I offer guidance for the betrayed partner as well as the partner who broke the trust. You can access it for free right now by clicking the link in the show notes. Have you ever noticed in some relationships that there are people that just give and give and give and really never seem to be on the other end of that? They don't really have people that reciprocate or give back and they burn out from just all of the giving that they do. And then there's other people on the other side of this where they're just takers and they don't really ever give. They're not aware of other people and the relationships just seem very one-sided. My guest today on this episode of the Illuminate podcast says that these patterns are actually quite common and a lot of the times we learn how to act in these roles from the families that we grew up in. And then, of course, if you're dealing with a sexual addiction, a pornography addiction, and all of the trauma that goes with that, those dynamics can trigger this giver-taker type dynamic in a relationship. And in today's episode, we are going to break that down and talk about these roles and how to get out of them and ways that if you're on the giver side or the taker side, that you can start to do things to improve that dynamic and be a healthier person and have better reciprocity in your intimate relationships, not only your romantic relationships, but also all of your relationships, because these patterns don't just stop when you leave your home. My guest today is Mari Lee. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, and she was on a previous episode of the Illuminate podcast. So go back and listen to that episode on mindfulness if you haven't already. Get introduced to her and her wonderful work that she's doing. She's also a certified sex addiction therapist and supervisor and a certified partner's trauma therapist and supervisor and a certified mindfulness-based addiction therapist and supervisor. And if you can't tell already, in her supervisory role, she's a tremendous coach and a support to therapists all over the world. And she has lots of great resources and trainings available to help people elevate their ability to help people that are struggling. And Mari is um, an owner of a private practice, a business coach, an author, and has a lot of great resources for both the public and also for clinicians. I will make sure that I put links to all of her resources in the show notes so that you can access all the wonderful things that she's producing. So I'm going to jump in to today's interview with her as we talk about givers and takers. First of all, thank you for coming on. Oh my gosh, so pleased to be back and thank you for having me. I just love the work that you do in the world, Jeff. So it is my sincere pleasure to be here and an honor. Well, I look forward to the conversation. I, uh, I love picking your brain on this stuff. You're, uh, you've got a wealth of wisdom. So um, we're going to talk about this dynamic that that uh, we definitely see in recovery, not just early recovery, but also long-term recovery, especially if it's never addressed, which is this dynamic of one person being more of a giver and the other person being more of a taker. And this shows up, if that sounds familiar when I say that dynamic, you probably are like, oh yeah, well, I see this everywhere, not just in a recovery context. I see it in work relationships. I see it with maybe my parents. I see it all kinds of places. You're right. This is a dynamic that as human beings, we have to pay very close attention to, but it really becomes problematic when there needs to be significant changes and healing in relationships. So Mari, I'm going to let you just jump in on this. Um, 
you wrote a blog post years ago that I'm going to post in the show notes as well that uh, was a great introduction to this topic, and so I encourage all of you listeners to go read it. But can you give us a little uh, a little insight here just to kind of get things started on what this what's going on here with this give or taker dynamic um, when especially when it comes to recovery work? Oh, I would love to. It's one of uh, it's a topic that is near and dear to my heart. Having being a, re, a recovering overgiver <laughs> <laughs> most of my adult life now. I turned fifty seven this summer, and really for the last twenty years, I've been practicing good boundaries uh, around being an overgiver. Um, but when we talk about givers and takers, I always think about it as the island in the waves, right? Where we've got you know, if we're thinking about the coupleship, right, Jeff, and especially with addicts and partners, we usually have one person who's sort of the island, sort of off, not really present in the relationship. And then we've got the person who's the wave, you know, that's constantly washing up on the shore. How are you? Why don't you talk to me? How, what are you thinking about? You know, where were you? And then sometimes it's a tsunami wave when they've discovered, you know, some some piece of the betrayal. Maybe right. that's pornography because pornography is not a part of the relationship agreement. Maybe it's an affair, whatever it is. And then there's this tsunami that's washing over the wave. And, you know, with the givers and the takers, I, you know, sort of using this island and wave analogy, another thing that I will share, you know, with a couple couples that I work with is, or if I'm doing a workshop on givers and takers, I'll talk about how oftentimes partners who are the giver partners will go in and they'll say, okay, you know, I've got to, you know, I, I've got to build a boat and gather the wood and, and I, and I have to, you know, create this boat and, and, and find the blueprint and, you know, to get us off this, this island of trauma and addiction and, and pain. And there's that other island of health and healing over there. So I've got to get that boat together and build it all. And then, okay, now I've got to, you know, you know, coax my husband over to this boat and get the water and the supplies on there. And, and now I've got to be the one in the front steering the boat over the island, but, but we're not getting anywhere and we're not going anywhere and we're going in circles. What's going on. And then I look back and, and my husband is in the back of the boat, you know, paddling back over to the island of pain or drilling a hole in the boat, you know? And so I jump out and I patch the hole and I fend off the shark and I, and I, you know, show him how to use a paddle and, 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 and the story goes, right? And so uh, when I think about, you know, that phenomenon of givers and takers, especially as it relates to addicts and partners together, it's almost like, you know, these two individuals are just drawn to one another as we hear the history of the relationship and the history of their own family of origin that predates the marriage or predates the relationship where that taker learned in the family of origin that if I try and give, I'm going to be shamed or laughed at or taken advantage of. Or what's modeled to me is that women are the givers in the relationship and the men are the takers. And, you know, that's what I saw with my mom and dad, for example. Or I saw my mom overgiving all the time. Let's say it's a female. I saw my mom overgiving all the time. And I really despised that. I thought that was weak and embarrassing. And so I learned to be more of a taker and nobody's going to take advantage of me. So we learn all of that in our family of origin. And we call that, of course, clinically speaking, we call that attachment, how we attach to our early family, our early caregivers. It's all under that umbrella of attachment theory. 
And so is it, what type of attachment did that human being learn? How did they learn to love? You know, did love, do they feel that they're entitled to taking from people? You know, is there some sociopathy involved there or narcissism involved there where they feel that they are entitled to take? Or with the givers, do they feel that the only way that they can be loved and accepted and cherished in a relationship is if they prove their worth constantly if they overgive you know if i give you this gift if i give you this sex if i give you this you know all of these activities that i'm doing like building the boat you know then you'll stay with me and you'll love me so it really boils down to the island and the waves and where we learn to be a giver or a taker yeah i mean first of all i love the imagery of the the island the wave the boats or the waves in the boat and and just the, the overexertion, right? The overfunctioning and underfunctioning dynamic. That is so descriptive. And what you're saying essentially, and this I've seen this as well in my work, is that these these roles, these dynamics that are so reflexive don't just start in the marriage. No. No, they don't. No, we learn these kinds of ways of being in our family of origin with our first caregivers and even socially, you know, in our schools. Um, what does that look like? So if we think about in our schools, you know, we usually have that straight A student or, you know, the pothead in the parking lot or, you know, the bad girl or, you know, the the the, the good girl or whatever these roles and these rules are that we learn to be for people to like us or to love us. And, you know, in the beginning, as children, when we learn this in a family of origin, let's say the family of origin wasn't the healthiest place, you know, not every family, as we know, Jeff, as therapists, are, is a Brady Bunch, <laughs> you know, and I would say probably, you know, if we could peek behind the Brady Bunch, there was a lot of stuff going on, you know, think about Alice, the housekeeper, sneaking <laughs> in Sam the Butcher to her bedroom, that probably <laughs> You know, think about those three kids being crowded into those little bedrooms, you know, sharing a bathroom, three girls and three boys, you know, that there would be fights breaking out all the time. So, you know, there's just family of origins have their issues and their problems. And, you know, behind closed doors, it might look great on the surface, but we know that every family has their challenges that they deal with. And so when we learn about you know, as a child, we learn these coping mechanisms, right, that help us stay safe in the family. So it might be, I'm going to be the perfect child that never rocks a boat, or I'm going to be the peacemaker in the family, or I'm going to be the clown that makes everyone laugh, or I'm going to be the scapegoat where, you know, if we think about just in spiritual terms, what a scapegoat is, you know, the scapegoat was, you know, all the sins being cast upon that goat being cast out into the wilderness, right? And so the scapegoat also serves a role, you know, it acts out the family pain. And so when we think about those rules and rules and 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 how we develop these coping mechanisms as little people in our families to help us keep safe and stay off the radar and stay out of, you know, uh, out of trouble if you will. If those coping mechanisms that kept us safe as children. So maybe we disappeared into a book or we smoked pot or we, you know, chronically masturbated, whatever it was to keep us feeling safe in that family. If that's not examined and healed and integrated as we mature as human beings, then that coping mechanism fossilizes and turns into a defense mechanism for that human being. And as an adult, a defense mechanism does not keep you healthy or safe. It keeps you sick and stuck. Mm -hmm. 
So we have to look at the defense mechanisms, uncover those defense mechanisms in givers and takers. What happened in your family of origin that allowed you to feel like you have to give to the point of exhaustion or resentment? Because giving to that, you know, what I call toxic giving is really about control. It's controlling outcomes and it's controlling fear, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it comes from a place of a defense mechanism. And same thing for people who are toxic takers. This comes from a place of fear as well, that there, there's a, you know, um, a feeling of scarcity that I'm not going to get the love that I need or, or my needs will not be met. And I don't feel like I am capable of meeting that other human beings needs. And so they can do all the feeling work, all the hard work, all the heavy lifting in the relationship. And I'll just let them do that. And in my experience, I, I don't know if it's like this for you, but in my experience, generally this dynamic doesn't get challenged or even addressed or recognized until the giver burns out. Yes. Right? Because mm -hmm. I, I mean, for the taker in general, it's a pretty good gig, right? Mm-hmm. I mean... It, it is. It is because it allows... It, what it does is it creates um, the secondary gain, right, for a taker is I don't have to grow. Right. And growth is scary. And so I can stay in my turtle shell and I don't really have to think about growing Pass us, and it is a, it's a, it's a person who's stuck in gear developmentally because it's scary. It's scary to grow as a person. It's scary to try new things. It's scary to develop, and so if that person got stuck in gear at fourteen years old, and that's where they are emotionally in terms of relationships because their heart was broken or they were teased, or they saw something terrible happen between their mother and father, and that's just where the trauma because it's based in trauma got stuck them in gear, we have to help that client mindfully, yes, with cognitive tools, like we talked about in our, our other conversation on our mind, the mindfulness podcast, we have to use cognitive tools to help that person, but at the same time, help them become mindfully aware of how they can show up for that inner child and help that child grow up with the help of the therapist and mindfulness-based tools. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it takes work and it takes courage to do that, but it does feel like, you know, the second dairy gain on the surface can feel like, ooh, you know, fine, just keep doing all the hard work. But really on the inside, that person is isolated. And oftentimes what you hear from takers are, I feel shame-based. I feel lonely. I don't feel like anybody really knows me or would ever really yeah. accept me. And I feel drained to be around people. And with takers, it's, you know, I'm, I'm burning out. I'm feeling resentful. I'm starting to be really passive aggressive in my conversations. I'm losing respect and hope for my, my partner or they die. And, and that really is a tragedy with, with toxic givers, chronic overgivers, they eventually will, will likely be diagnosed with something and they can die in their toxic giving. You mean, which is really sorry, scary. are you talking about like diagnosed with like some health issues? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. With a disease, with cancer, with, you know, heart problems. Sort of heart problem, definitely heart problems with um, some, you know, some sort of chronic pain disorder because the mind, body, and spirit are definitely systems that are, that work together. Hmm. So if you're a chronic um, giver, like I certainly used to be in my teens, twenties, and thirties, I mean, I can remember 
So I can remember a roommate at the time saying, oh gosh, I just feel like, you know, I just feel like I can't get my, you know, bedroom organized. And I went in and organized the whole bedroom and did the whole thing, organized the closet. And a week later, her bedroom would be messed up again. <laughs> and so I everything for her and redo it again and redo it again. And then she had lost some weight and, you know, I'd love to, you know, dress, you know, a little more fashionable. And so, you know, I bar- gave her all these clothes of mine and they'd end up in a crumpled pile on the floor. And I'm trying to do all of this for her and then starting to feel more and more and more resentful. And then I remember just getting this big argument. We were in our 20s and yelling at her and calling her sloppy and telling her that she didn't appreciate it and she felt so entitled. When in reality, I wasn't, I, I, you know, I wasn't giving the, the, the fisherman a pole to fish to feed himself. I was giving him all the fish. She was becoming reliant on me. So what did that mean? That means I could control all the outcomes in our apartment so that her sloppiness didn't, you know, overwhelm me. Right. <laughs> and it, it's, right. about, it's about fear. It's about control. It's about feeling that you are not worth love, that you are not, that you have to hustle for your worth in the words of Brene Brown, that you just being yourself as just a, a person who gives and takes, not an overgiver, that you're just worthy of love and belonging just because of who you are, that you don't have to overgive took me a long time to learn that, really until my late 30s. Now, my guess is that there's probably more givers listening to this podcast right now than takers, would you say? (laughs) I would say so. And what I would say with all love in my heart to the givers listening right now is I get you. I've been there. I'm a recovering perfectionist. I turned 57 years old recently. And I get it. You know, I was a chronic toxic overgiver myself. And what I would say to you then is, you know, manage the, the, the triggers that you may be having or manage the temptation to make your significant other sit down and listen to this conversation, right? You know, you can certainly send it in an email, you know, to your um, taker spouse or your taker sister or taker mother, whoever it is. Um, but then just manage your own um ways of wanting to control the outcome of them actually listening to it. That's not your job. Your job is to share the information and work on yourself. And that's hard. Yeah. And the working on yourself is usually going to show up dressed up as boundaries, right? Yes. Yes. I always say between belly up, going belly up, overgiving, right. And blowing up when you finally have reached your win- your threshold of, of tolerance, your window of tolerance of overgiving is boundaries. So between going belly up and blowing up are really healthy boundaries and boundaries will be your best friend as a, as an overgiver. And also by the way, as an overtaker, yeah. those boundaries and also mindfulness work, as we touched on before in our in our other conversation, really working with a therapist who understands the importance of helping you, not just sitting in the lotus position, but understanding like, where is that hole in your soul? How can we do some deep diving beyond the cognitive tools, really getting in there and doing that deep healing work around what's informing and motivating that overgiving or that overtaking. Yeah, and and it's it's really about kind of sitting with the patterns and looking at that and taking some personal accountability, whatever end of the spectrum you're on, and being able to say, I'm you know I'm I can do something about this dynamic because if you're a taker, you can stop taking. If you're a giver, you can stop giving so much, and it will shift the dynamic. Um, I I remember reading a, a Facebook post some time ago from Liz Gilbert, the author. Elizabeth Gilbert, who said, 
Yeah, she said something like, um, if you want to know where to set your boundary, she said, pay attention to the anger. And right, right where the anger starts to happen, that's your line. And, yes. and that is a signal to you that there needs to be a boundary. A line's been crossed, and you can trust that. And then you start backing up. And then when you back up and you stop feeling angry again, you've, you're in the working zone now. And that's the perfect boundary. And I, I think forgivers, they suffer a lot from resentment and anger. A lot of the times, unexpressed, because they might feel guilty that they shouldn't feel that because they're not a good person. And it gets into those messages that you've been talking about. But givers... Givers, and I understand this too, Mari, because I actually happen to be a recovering giver myself. Mm -hmm. um, and and I don't know if the therapists, if we just tend to draw, <laughs> we sort of like show up in this profession because we tend to be bleeding hearts or whatever. But um, I definitely uh, have played out a giver role. And what's interesting is my wife has also, so we both sort of showed up as givers in our relationship. That's been an interesting dance. That's another podcast for another day. But yes, yes. Um, <laughs> but right. the thing is, is that those boundaries are usually going to be signaled by anger and resentment. Has that been your experience? Uh, absolutely. And I, and I love, I love how you're talking about partners sometimes have that guilt, you know, of expressing that when I'm teaching those givers over givers, right. Uh, how to have boundaries. A lot of times they'll push back and say, well, what's wrong with giving? They're not understanding what, what they're feeling is and experiencing is fear and self-sabotaging fear. Well, giving is good. I've learned in my church or my family that to be a giver is good. I want to be a generous person. We're not talking about generosity. We're not talking about being a giver in terms of a healthy, balanced way of giving to somebody. We're talking about parentifying your part, being the parentified partner. Yeah feeling like you have to be the mommy or the daddy that's managing everything in all aspects of the relationship. Being generous is a wonderful trait to have as a person. And so we're, you know, we want to clarify, we're not talking about that, but overgiving comes from a place of pain and fear. And so definitely the boundaries that the signals that we hear when we mindfully attune to our body and we learn how to do that, what you may feel is not like a lot of times partners will think, well, I'm not an angry person, right. but you might experience contempt. So maybe you mm. come in and you've cooked this meal for your, you know, your significant other, or you've done the laundry, you've done whatever, you've done something sort of above and beyond or whatever it is, and you're in your role of overgiving. And your your partner doesn't say the taker doesn't say thank you or like oh I don't even really want to eat that tonight or you know whatever thanks you know I I'm not going to wear that suit I don't know why you went to the laundromat or why did you pick up that dress for me I would never wear that color whatever it is inside you might feel like that eye roll yeah you know you right way of internal talking to yourself that is based in content or contempt, excuse me, contempt. And you might even say something snappish to the partner. Maybe it won't even have to do with the actual incident. Maybe your partner accidentally, you know, gives you a flat tire, you know what I mean? Like step, steps on your foot or, you know, steps on the back of your shoe and you turn around and say, could you watch where you're going? Gosh. And it's like this outburst <laughs> nowhere. That in the moment saying, oh, wow, I'm starting to feel a level of contempt toward my partner. I'm starting to feel anger. You know, anger can take many forms. It can be self-sabotage. It can be stonewalling. I could use silence as violence where I'm just giving my partner the silent. Oh, I was, believe me, the ice queen back in my 20s and 30s. If I felt like I was overgiving and my partner wasn't showing up in a way that I expected or wasn't appreciating me enough. I, I was the ice queen. I was Elsa. I could 
Absolutely. <laughs> that person out. I wasn't a blowing up person. I was like, yep. okay, whatever. How are you? Fine. Are you upset with me? Nope. <laughs> that kind of thing, which is that stonewalling, that shaming, the ice queen, which I didn't feel good about. It felt like my spirit was dying inside. Totally. Mm-hmm. So we just want to be aware of how anger shows up in really sneaky ways. It's not just blowing up. Right. We're blowing up and like, oh, to set my boundary right when I'm blowing up, it's other little subtle ways that it can show up. That's how mindfulness can help attune to that, right? Right. No, I love it. You're totally describing stuff that's so familiar to me. That's why I was kind of chuckling. I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, (laughs) I, you know, I've iced people out. I, you know, I get it. Like, because you, you feel that contempt and it's not coming out of nowhere. It's, it's, it's directly related to, you know, these dynamics and these roles of giving too much. And what's the perfect balance look like, Mari, just as we're kind of wrapping up here, what, what do you feel like is the perfect balance of, you know, if we could design sort of a nice uh, middle ground where people just feel respected and the balance is there for a couple or what friendships or parent child, what would that look like? Yeah. Yeah. But could I just add a little to a little mindfulness tool that might be helpful for your listeners yeah, yeah. just before I answer that? Okay. So one of the things that came to mind really quickly um, that I'll teach clients, Jeff, that might be very helpful is I'll ask clients to mindfully be aware of what are the two roots, name two roots that are informing your anger. You have to know what is your anger is rooted in. So for me, for example, my anger is always rooted in when I feel underappreciated and when I feel misunderstood. Mm. So if I feel like somebody is underappreciating me, you know, and I feel really angry toward a person, I I can always go back and say, oh, I'm either feeling underappreciated or I'm feeling misunderstood. And then what I know is if I'm feeling underappreciated, it probably means I'm overgiving into that relationship. Got it. So I need to manage that overgiving Because that person is not, they don't owe me appreciation. If I'm giving, then I need to do that from a place of generosity and and gratitude to give to that person. But if I'm over giving, then I'll fall into that place of resentment where I'm feeling like I'm angry because I don't feel like they're appreciating me. And that's on you, not them. Right. And appreciation is important. I I like thanking people. I want people to know that I appreciate when they they generously give into my life, you know, whatever that looks like. And then if I feel my other root is if I feel misunderstood, if somebody has made a judgment call about me and they don't really know me and they maybe say something and it comes back to me, it doesn't happen often, but if it does, then I can go right into rage. And that's about control for me. It's like, well, I can't control the way that that person receives me and perceives me. I have nothing to do with that. However they receive me and perceive me is really on them. And so I don't have to be angry with them, I can set a boundary and say, okay, well, that's not how I experience myself, but that's okay that they do. And I don't have to overgive and try and win them over. So I just thought that was an important tool around mindfulness to really dig in and understand what your roots are to anger. In terms of balance, and I hope that's helpful, Jeff. Love it. Yep. Love it. Thank you. 
Good. Yes. And then in terms of balance, again, I think sometimes it can be so hard. We get so close to our own selves. We get so close to our own behavior that it just feels like our normal. We aren't under, even understanding that we are toxic givers and takers. So maybe somebody who's listening today is having that little light bulb moment like, oh, wow, this is making sense to me. What I would say then is to find that good balance for you, because balance is different for everyone, is to to know, name, and maintain your boundaries. But unless you know what your boundaries are, you can't name them. And until you name your boundaries, you can't maintain them. And believe me, maintaining boundaries will be the hardest thing you do when you're shifting from being a chronic overgiver maintaining them because people will, they like taking, they want you to change back and give that overgiver. So, but first you have to know what your boundaries are. You have to name them and that can be really hard and scary. And then you have to maintain them. And I think working with a therapist to learn what your boundaries are, where you, you end and the other person begins, where your window of tolerance is, what your anger triggers are, those roots that we talked about, and then knowing how to use I statements and non-shaming language to name your boundaries and then maintain your boundaries because human nature is always to push back on those boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. The significant matter will always push back. Working with a therapist can be very, very helpful in learning how to do that. And a therapist who is mindfully based in their training, that's even better. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, that's great. So Mari, t uh, tell us where people can find you and resources. Uh, just love for people to connect with you and the work you're doing. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. Well, um, I think the best website that if it's a therapist that's listening to our conversation and you have interest in going, uh, becoming a mindfully based addiction therapist and being certified in mindfulness work, because we know that mindfulness, when we weave mindfulness work into our clinical practice, not just the cognitive tools, but intentional focused mindfulness tasks that is a game changer for clients you can go to the mindfulness academy for addiction and trauma training or tmat t-m-a-a-t-t.com and learn more about our mbat uh, certification program and if you are a um, non-therapist if you're a person listening to this um, there are um tools and you can contact us through MBAT and we'll be very happy to refer you to um, therapists in your area. People can go to Growth Counseling Services if you're located in California. Again, that is growthcounselingservices.com. You're welcome to reach out to me. I work with clients all over the state of California, um, givers and takers, uh, addicts and partners and do good work. And I do my partner, uh, my partner and addict uh, therapy work via telehealth. So um, we will work remotely. Um, so I, that helps me work with clients all over the state of California. That's where I'm licensed, by the way. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. And I'll put links to all those in the show notes. Um, Mari, as you can tell listeners, she is a wealth of information and resources and life experience and very, uh, you know, very expert, I should say, in lots of different areas. I uh, just on social media and other places where I follow her, I just am always amazed at the uh, the depth and the and the information that she shares. It's just wonderful. So thank you so much for this engaging conversation about this. I've learned a few things as well, and it's helped me um, get some insight and clarity on my own overgiving that I'm still working on all the time. And uh, so I appreciate your time, Mari. 
Well, as a, a fellow healing over giver, it's been an <laughs> absolute pleasure. And I, you know, and any givers and takers that are listening, neither is better or worse. You know, we're all in a in a, a stage and phase of of healing and growing as human beings. And and I was just so delighted to have this conversation today. So thank you very much, Jeff. To learn more about Mari's clinical work, you can visit growthcounselingservices.com. And if you want to schedule a coaching session with her, you can reach her at thecounselorscoach.com. And I'll put links to all of her resources in the show notes so you can access Mari's wonderful resources. She's a wealth of knowledge, as you can tell. And we're so grateful to have her on the podcast today. And I also want to let you know that the Trust Building Bootcamp that I've talked about previously on this podcast is now officially launched and it's available on trustbuildingacademy.com. And for all of my Illuminate listeners, if you put in the coupon code Illuminate on checkout, I will give you 30% off of the course. I'm excited to share this resource with the world. It's a 12-week online course along with uh, twice-monthly group calls with support from me directly where you can get your questions answered as you're working to rebuild trust in a relationship where trust has been betrayed. And the course has lots of videos and handouts and resources to help you become a trustworthy person and create conditions where trust can be restored. So that's the Trust Building Bootcamp available at trustbuildingacademy.com. In the next episode of the Illuminate podcast, I'm going to introduce you to a great man named Kurt Frankham. He is the founder of Leading Saints, which is an online resource and podcast for people in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are in leadership callings and want to improve their ability to lead and support others. He recently launched a virtual summit, which is an online conference called Liberating Saints, which brought together experts from all over and people in recovery to talk about the problem of pornography addiction and betrayal trauma. And this conference had so many amazing presentations And I interviewed Kurt to talk about the conference, but also what he learned from it. And he's got some great insights from somebody on the outside of the recovery movement who jumped in and is making a difference in the world. So stay tuned for that. Thank you again for your wonderful support. If you find the Illuminate podcast helpful, please go to iTunes and leave a rating so that more people can access this amazing life-changing information from all these wonderful guests and resources that are available on this podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you in the next episode.